Alright, this morning let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, that's what we'll be looking at today. I've been titling it, Pulling Back the Curtain of the Old and the New. The reason for that is because the old is going to pass away. And that's the point in chapter 7 on through Hebrews, and it's replaced by the new. And now that the author has already injected the strongest warning against sluggishness of mind and the deadliness of unbelief, and then has encouraged his listeners by saying that he's fully confident that they do belong to Christ and that they are actually recipients of Christ's blessing. And the reason why he says that is because he saw that they had a living and a working faith. God was doing something in them and therefore showing outside of them in, in biblical fruit, in spiritual fruit. And we know so far that once the truths of knowing you're a believer, knowing God's Spirit is in you, knowing that you bear fruit, and God's definitely working on you, that gives you a firm stance as a Christian that you can overcome the doubts and uncertainties of life. And it just encourages you to press on in life with confidence in your salvation. Confidence not because you had anything to do with it, but confidence that Christ called you to it, and you responded by the working of God's Spirit on you, and you became a believer, and God began to change you. That gives you great confidence that your position before the God of heaven is secure because it is anchored in God's inner sanctuary and protected by a high priest who's continually in God's presence, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Now, with all that preparation, that's where the authors brought the audience so far. He moves them ahead. He pulls them out of their spiritual sluggishness, and he, he moves them closer to understanding what God has actually done. He points them to Jesus Christ as great high priest, one similar to Melchizedek. He begins to unpack the son's typological relationship with Melchizedek. And we have seen so far Christ greater than the prophets, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Abraham, greater than Aaron the first high priest, and now we come to a central chapter in all the book of Hebrews, a chapter displaying Christ as greater than the Levitical priesthood itself. Now, why is that important? From last week, just by way of reminder, remember, in the Old Testament, God gave two ways to approach Him. Two proper ways a person may have access to God. In other words, God made a way for sinners to receive His mercy. And mercy defined is God's provision for sinners 
to escape the punishment they deserve for their sins. God's holy, they're sinners, God is just and righteous, he has to hold them responsible for their sin, but God says, well, I have mercy, and of course the mercy was found in two places. The first proper way of to have access to God was through the law. Learn the law, learn what God wants you to do, what he doesn't want you to do, and obey the law. Along with the law, the second proper way to have access to God was through the priesthood, through the sacrificial system. Now, if you were here last week, I laid the foundation for that. We went to the Old Testament and looked at it, and we saw that the real problem, the problem was and is the two proper ways to have access to God were ineffective. That's a problem. In what sense were they ineffective? Number one, the law was weak and useless, unable to make anything perfect. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. It says, for, the one who, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of the weakness and uselessness, of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And then the priests were weak, they were imperfect, they were sinful, and they died, and it had to go from one priesthood to another priesthood, uh, all the way in, from generation to generation. And the priests got corrupt as things went on, and things got look, the law got pushed to the side. And, of course, then it became something where the world got in there, and it got all twisted and convoluted. And so the priests, they weren't perfect either. And then the sacrificial couldn't ta- make anyone perfect. So the bottom line was that the law, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system could not give a person continual access to God and make that person right before a holy God. Couldn't do it. It was impossible. All that it did, the law did, and how it was designed was to magnify sin. Also, there was no escaping the human estrangement from God which follows sin. Sin separates us from God. All the efforts of the priest, all the sacrifices offered could not restore the lost relationship with God completely. It was only temporary. Matter of fact, it was really only a picture of what would come. So the argument of chapter 7 and onwards is we need we need a, a new and a different priesthood and we need a new and an effective sacrifice. That is, we need another kind of priest and we need another kind of sacrifice. See, believers needed to have a priest who can give them constant access to God and make them perfect before God. Who can do that? You can't do that. The sacrificial system couldn't do it. The priest couldn't do it. So, see, we're in dilemma that the Old Testament method of providing for God's people did not produce holiness in them or perfect anyone eternally. That's a problem. 
But I must say that while I'm saying that, because I hear people say this to me all the time, well, you know, Pastor, no one's perfect. I know what they mean. But in one sense, they're right. In one sense, they're wrong. In one sense, we all have to say, listen, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? There's no one righteous, not even one. But on the other hand, sometimes saying that no one is perfect in that sense is to cover up their own failure to obey, as a believer at least. No one's perfect. Somehow we think that is the the excuse to cover our moral lameness. But what I'm saying here this morning is that Jesus is in the business of perfecting sinful people. That's the point of him being the high priest. That is what his high priesthood is all about. Jesus' death has paid for all our sins. And in God's presence right now, he is praying for us. When we confess our failures and our sin and we repent of our sin before God, he offers forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Confession, forgiveness, and repentance are the process through which God perfects imperfect people. Sinful people. And the perfect sacrifice of Christ, and by his perfect sacrifice, his godly character and his permanent prayers can take a weak and a sinful people and move them toward God. And even though in this lifetime we will not be become perfect, we will and are promised perfection in God's presence or we would not make it there. Be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what it says, right, in the Word of God? Excuse me, in, in, in the Word of God in Matthew? But just thinking about that for one minute, before I look at the text, uh, prison fellowship is a ministry working among prison inmates that provide really uh, inmates and parolees uh, service, encouragement, Bibles, uh, opportunity to hear the gospel, opportunity to attend worship services. And in one particular prison, not too far from here, in the state of Delaware, there, there was no chapel. So the, a bunch of churches in the area got together along with the, some other efforts to raise money, and they built the chapel, and the chapel was going to build, be built by the inmates. Well, it came the day where the chapel was built. And the chapel to some of the inmates who became believers represented God's invasion of a prison for the purpose of righteousness. They were able to go somewhere and hear the word of God preached, and they would provide that. Uh, preachers who can preach the word of God. And this one particular man named Jim, he was one of the volunteers who helped. He says, when I was around believers working with me, I felt them caring for me. He shared movingly what Jesus meant to him, how he and his brothers were free, even though they were in prison. John chapter 8, he quoted, he tried to control his emotions as he thanked the local churches for supporting the building of the chapel. In fact, Jim was serving a life sentence without parole. He was never getting out. So, Jim wasn't a perfect person, was he? 
Jim was a sinner. And his sins landed him in that facility for the rest of his known days. He was going to stay there. But he found Christ. And Christ changed his life. And Christ took him and molded him into something he could never have been molded into on his own. The power of God's Spirit and His Word worked on this man, and now he was rejoicing as a free man, even though imprisoned. See, we have in Christ a Savior, a high priest, who can take imperfect, sinful people and lead them to holiness, that Christ prays for us. He offers forgiveness when we come to Him and confession and when we confess to him and repent of our sins, he, he is eternally available to offer his encouragement and support to all who come to him. So we have Jesus, a priest who can take us in our sin and in perfection and make us what we should be, holy unto God and heading for heaven in the presence of of a holy God. Now, on that very note, we come to Hebrews chapter 7, and we come to this mysterious character, which I'm going to bring up to you again, because he becomes such an important character in this particular book. Not really mentioned in any other book of the, of the New Testament. And of course, this mysterious character is named Melchizedek. He was first introduced to us in the Old Testament as a king priest. That Melchizedek seems to arrive on the scene and disappear. Arrive and disappear. Arrive and fade away. That's the kind of character the Bible describes him as. So, Let's look at some of the, the places that we see Melchizedek. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 14 and verse number 18 through 20. Here's where he first comes on the scene. And of course, this context here, and I will look at some of the context, is that of Abram, who has already led his people He's still called Abram in this passage of Scripture. But notice in verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. This is Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, verse 19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tenth of all, the word of God says. Now, in this historic record, this high priest is presented as a priest in benediction. Now, what I mean by that is that there's no altar, there's no sacrifice, there's no duties. He is performing none of those things. He, he doesn't even, uh, he, he doesn't come before us as a sacrificing priest, he comes before us as a blessing priest, as a proclaiming priest, one who 
proclaims victory. One who is ministering to one who's still here. And Abraham is, is kept from falling as he gives a blessing. That is, God, whom he's worshiping, is aiding Abraham in his ordeal. Now, what was his ordeal? Well, if you look back at verse number 1, verse number 9, in fact, at the last part of the verse, Abram, uh, the king of Sodom, in a coalition with other kings, is defeated by another coalition. Lot is taken captive. And we see in verse number 9, it says four kings against five, the last part of verse number 9. And verse 12 of 14.1, and they also took Lot, uh, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. All right, so this is the situation here leading up to this passage of Scripture. Abraham is really an authority figure in the land. Uh, He's in some ways viewed as a king. Uh, In verse 13 and 14, an escapee brings news of Lot's captivity to Abraham, who in turn takes his trained men to rescue Lot. In verse number 14, it says, When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, 318 commandos trained men, trained men of warfare, and he went out with them, and he says, let's go get back what was taken from us. In verse 15 through 17, Abraham, uh, Abram defeats Lot's captors, rescues him, his people, and his possessions, and then, when he's coming back from defeating these kings, because it seems from, from Scripture that Abraham was a key was key in defeating these other kings, then what happens is that Melchizedek shows up in verse 18 through 20. He comes out of nowhere. He shows up right before Abram, and he's identified as the priests of God Most High. Wait a minute, we got a real problem here. The priesthood's not even going to come about for a while the priest could, didn't come about until Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Here's Melchizedek before any of that. Was there a priesthood before that? Obviously, in Scripture, there was. So Melchizedek is a different kind of person. He is definitely serving the true and living God in the Word of God. And we also... If you notice in chapter 15, something else happens. Abraham, of course, refuses to accept any gifts from the king of Sodom. And the reason why, because he made an oath with with God that he wasn't going to take anything from any king, lest anybody should say they made Abraham rich because all the richness that came to Abraham came from God himself. And then God reassures Abraham in a vision that he was going to have a great nation. Well, he didn't have any children at this time. He was barren. His wife was barren. They had no kids. And so he says in chapter 15, verse 2, And Abraham Abraham said, O Lord God, what will thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is 
Eliezer of Damascus, and Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house will be my heir. And God says to him in verse 4, No, that's not going to be. You're going to be the father of many people. You're going to be the father of nations. And he tells him that in chapter 15, and he gives him the promise of a large amount of descendants. And then in chapter 15, in verse number 6, what does Abraham do? It says, then he believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There is the justification by faith passage of Scripture. He believed God's promise. And then what goes on now is that Abraham makes a covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He takes animals He cuts them in half, he puts them on the side of each other, and then he walks through the middle of them. That was the greatest view of what a covenant was. That's why they used to say cutting a covenant. This is what it meant. It meant that they walked through it, the animal's blood was shed, and therefore the covenant was really sealed by blood. Now, that's the background here. That's what's going on here in the Word of God. In fact we see that Abraham is that kind of person. And so this is the first place that he shows up. Now, there's a second place he shows up. And that's in Psalm 110 and verse number 4. But he shows up a thousand years later in Scripture. One thousand years later in Psalm 110 verse 4. The first one was a historical context of of, of, excuse me, Melchizedek. This one is a prophetical context of Abraham where it says in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So here we are reminded that the promise to Abraham is secure because of God's oath. God made an oath saying that You would have a priest, and that priest would be in the order of Melchizedek. And that was the second time that this particular individual, this king-priest, shows up. And why does he show up? Well, in this passage of Scripture, it says that he would be a priest forever. Well, that means he's going to trump in some way the Aaronic priesthood. He's going to be over it, even though he is before it ever happened. Now, there, if we look at him again, a thousand years later, he shows up again, right here in Hebrews chapter 5. And turn there, look at verse number 5. It says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 6, Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then down to verse number 9 of chapter 5. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So here's the three times that we see Melchizedek mentioned in scripture and in each segment it's very short the information about him is very little in fact 
from Scripture, we can glean just several things from him. So what is the deal with this guy? What, what is going on? Why is he so important? And why don't you hear anything about him? Anywhere. Well, Melchizedek is being displayed in Scripture as someone very great. And in this passage of Scripture, in Hebrews chapter 7, we see five expressions of greatness. And I want you to see that this morning. Five expressions of greatness concerning Melchizedek. And here's the first one. The greatness of Melchizedek is expressed in his status and his name. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. Verse 2. To whom also Abram apportioned a tenth part of all, his, all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness and also king of Salem, which means king of peace. So his very name tells us something about him. He is really... Maleki Sadiq, king, Malek, the Hebrew word for king is Malek. Sadiq is righteousness, the king of justice or the king of righteousness. So we see that immediately that this particular individual is a king of righteousness. And he is also king of Salem. And that word Salem, we really get the place where he ruled, which means peace, right? Jerusalem the city of peace, all right? And so we see that this man, two things come together in this man, that he is righteous and that where he reigns as a righteous king, there is peace. And in a, in a very real way, you cannot have peace unless you have righteousness. You cannot have peace without pure righteousness. When you have pure righteousness being carried out and pure justice being ca carried out, there can be peace. And so Melchizedek is definitely identified as this kind of individual. He who lived in the days of Abraham, if you know anything about chronology, then you'll conclude that Melchizedek was in the order of high priests way before the Aaronic priesthood was ever established. And that's the point in Scripture, that he is righteousness and peace, and the only one that can fill the categories of righteousness and peace is jesus christ himself as king he is just and as a priest he justifies all who trust in his atoning sacrifice and when they come to the the king of justice and the king who can justify them by sacrifice then they have real peace because now they're at peace with God. So the greatness of Melchizedek is seen in his name and his status being here the king of the most high God. In other words, here's God and here's Melchizedek. There's no one in between. A second thing I want you to notice the greatness of Melchizedek is found in verse 3 of chapter 7 and that his greatness is expressed through the silence of Scripture. Now, 
get this one, the silence of Scripture. It's not always what the Scriptures say, but in Hebrew narrative, it's what the Scriptures leave out that becomes one of the main points. Now, you say, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 3. Let me read it first. This man, Melchizedek, is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually or forever. Now, if you just read that, you say, well, wow, he doesn't even look human here. He, he can be identified by some, and some have identified him, as an angel, as some kind of spirit, as some kind of elusive, unreal character, not human at all. But because Melchizedek's human parents are not mentioned, does not mean that he, they didn't exist. As I said, this is a Hebrew literary device in which the writer uses the silence of Scripture to emphasize his point. And the main point is this. Here in Scripture, it says nothing of these things. The stress is on the, the priest-king being timeless, who continues in his priesthood as one who represents the Son of God, who continues a priest forever. In other words, it is saying here that this particular person has none of these things because they're not important because this king is not in the category of human kings who depended on genealogy to make sure that they were really going to be in the line of being a king this man right here is in a league by himself he is so different that this is the way the writer of Hebrews has to describe him. Now, let me back up a bit. We must be reminded that under Jewish law, remember, a man could not under any circumstance become a priest unless he could produce a certificate of pedigree going right back to Aaron. A great example of this is found when the Jews came back to Jerusalem after exile, and now they were organizing Jerusalem again, they were organizing the priesthood again, and they were trying to find who belongs to the line of Aaron. Who can be a Levitical priest again? And if you produce the documents and could prove it, then you could be uh, in the line of priest and go into the process of how it all happens. But if you could not produce genealogical records, then you know what happened? Couldn't be it. In fact, if you like, let me just read it. It's, this is found in Ezra chapter 2, verse 61 and 63. It says this, Of the sons of the priests, the sons of Halbiah, sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzili, who took a wife from the daughters of, of Barzillai and the Giladite, and he was called by name. These searched among the ancestral registrations, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. So when they came back, 
these people were saying, hey, we're in the line of Aaron. And he said, well, prove it. Well, they searched the documents, couldn't prove it. And so they had to consider them unclean and unable to become a priest. What it's saying here in Hebrews chapter 7 about Melchizedek is that he doesn't fit into that category. He didn't have any documentation. He didn't need any. He was called directly by God. In fact, if you look in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 6, it says this, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So there in that passage of Scripture, Melchizedek's genealogy is not traced back to Aaron. He didn't have the paperwork. In fact, Melchizedek couldn't be a Levitical priest. So the silence of Scripture about his birth, death, and genealogy was a type which really resembles the eternal priesthood of Christ. Now, I want to spend some time a little bit on this this concept of a type. Because there's really, we really have to determine something. Was Melchizedek a theophany or was he a type? Well, a theophany was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament, a manifestation of God in human form. An appearance of God in which he takes on visible form to show himself to people. In fact, right in a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 18, remember when three individuals came to Abraham, sat down, he cooked meat with them, and those three individuals told him that he was going to have a son, and he was going to call his son, his son's name Isaac, remember? And Sarah laughed. Well, we know in that passage of Scripture that is a theophany that God actually showed up. Because remember, later on, God says to Abraham, listen, Abraham, I don't want you, you're, you're a friend of God, so I want to tell you what I'm going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And they had this discussion about, Lord, if there's 50 righteous, 40, 30, 10, will you do it? And the Lord had this conversation. And of course, at past 10, the Lord doesn't hear his voice anymore. And of course, Abraham looks up, Sodom and Gomorrah is burning, and we see God poured wrath on that city for its sin that reached heaven. That was a theophany. God showed up. In fact, what I said last week, where the pillar of cloud by day in the tabernacle and the cloud mixed with fire at night, that too is a theophany. It is the, some visible thing that shows God is present. When Moses stood before the burning bush, that was a theophany that was a representation that god was present and what happens when god's present somebody takes bows down they take their shoes off they realize they're on holy ground well i don't think melchizedek is a theophany i think melchizedek is a type now what's a type a type is a copy it's a sign it's a figure a shadow cast on the pages of the Old Testament by a truth whose full embodiment and antitype is found in the New Testament. So a type has to always have some reality over here. Here's the picture, but here's the reality. 
here's the symbol, but here's the reality. Here's the copy, but here's the reality. Here's the one someone represents, but here's the reality. That's really what's going on here. In fact, Melchizedek, of course, becomes a type of Christ. In the New Testament, Adam is called the type. Where right in Romans, it actually uses the word. It says in Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Who was to come? Jesus, right? So Adam is, that's why Jesus Christ in Romans is called the second Adam, right? The one who does what Adam could not do. Where Adam failed, he becomes a success. So, see, Adam is a form, a figure, a pattern, a mold, a type of what would happen over here in the future, the embodiment embodiment of someone over here in the future. So, Melchizedek is specifically an apt counterpart of Christ in his priestly office. In other words, Melchizedek was a type of what Jesus Christ, the eternal priest king, would be. And so I believe a type fits the best. What's greater? A statue or the person it represents? What's greater? The person, right? What's greater? The bust of a person from usually head to shoulders or what it represents the person it represents right what's greater in our day a photograph or the person it represents now of course that that could be subject to opinion depending on who the person is but that's not my point the point is this who's greater the photograph if if i was we were this summer touring uh, in california and we visited the reagan museum you see all these pictures of reagan but i said man i would love to met the guy you know you see the pictures, and you, I like to meet the guy, shake his hand, talk to him, shoot the breeze, you know what I mean? Pick his brain. I wanted to do that. So see, it's always the picture is not greater than the person itself. The statue is not greater than the person itself, not at all whatsoever. So see, Melchizedek's priesthood is superior in every biblical way and to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood because it's only a type of the ultimate superior priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the anti-type. Christ is the embodiment. Christ is the reality. See, Christ is the anti-type which supersedes it just as the living reality supersedes a statue, a bust, or a photograph. The point is this passage is saying it is not Jesus who resembles Melchizedek, but it is Melchizedek who resembles Jesus. And all types point to the reality, and the reality we know for Melchizedek is Christ himself. So see, Melchizedek is a real man. He has to be if he's going to be a priest. Just as Christ had to be a real man for him to be our high priest. So he couldn't have been a theophany. He couldn't have been God alone. He had to be a type which represented 
and resembles the Lord Jesus Christ who was to come over here and fulfills everything Melchizedek is going to be. So I needed to say that to move on to my next one, and it's this. Here's a third, the third uh, expression of greatness in Abraham, the greatness of, Mel, of excuse me, Melchizedek, is expressed in his inherent superiority. Look what it says in verse number 5. And those, who, in, those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descendants from Abraham. In other words, in that passage of scriptures, listen, the Levitic, Levitical priest had every right by law to collect a tenth. And that from their brethren also. Because that's how they supported the priesthood. You collect the tenth, you support the priesthood. But look at verse number six. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham. In other words, what was Melchizedek doing at all collecting or taking or receiving a tenth of the spoils of war from Abraham? Well, for this reason, in the time of Abraham, paying tithes to one another was recognition of another's greatness and superiority. And it was also a sign of subjection to that person. And don't forget, Abraham, at, the time, at this time in his life, was at the top of his pile. He was the main person at the time. He was the greatest man at that time. He was the father of the nation of Israel. So when Abraham met Melchizedek, he immediately recognized and saw something in him greater than himself. And what does he do? He recognizes and honored Melchizedek as a divine priest and one greater than him. And what does he do in verse number 4, chapter 7? Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. That he went, when he came back to war, from the warring against those kings, he had all this plunder. Gold and silver and clothing and articles. And he gives the best of it to Melchizedek who wasn't in the line of Aaron. He didn't do it by any kind of law. There was no connection to Aaron or the sons of Levi. Melchizedek had no right as far as an Aaronic priest to take it, but Abraham gave him a tenth of the choice spoils anyway because he recognized in him someone greater than him. Just like when we come to Christ. And we see him on the pages of Scripture. We begin to recognize that Jesus Christ is greater than anyone. He's greater than anything. He is so great that all you can do is honor, respect, and worship. That's all you can do when you come to that place and you understand who Christ is. But remember, Melchizedek is pointing that way. That's the point of these passages. A fourth thing is this. The greatness of Melchizedek is expressed in the blessing of Abraham. Look at verse number 6 and 7. And blessed the one who had the promises. 
but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. What is it saying there? It's saying that the greater was blessed by the lesser. Who's the greater? Abraham? No, the greater is Melchizedek, and the greater always blesses the lesser. That Abraham sees himself as inferior to Melchizedek, and so he bows and he receives the prayer of blessing. Abraham had the promises, the promises of a, a large blessing of descendants. All the, father, all the nations of the world will be blessed by Abraham. He had the promise of the land that was going to be given to him. The best of the land, the best of the land in the world was going to be given to him. Melchizedek didn't have those promises, yet Melchizedek blesses him. And Abraham immediately feels inferior to his greatness and he bows and receives the blessing. And then a last thing, the greatness of Melchizedek is expressed by the Levitical or the Levites paying tithes through Abraham. I mean, tithes 10% of whatever you have. Now, what does that mean? Look at verse number 8 of chapter 7. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abram, Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, you know what it's saying here? It's saying that the whole Aaronic priesthood bows through Abraham to the superiority of Melchizedek, even though the priesthood was not established yet and all the descendants in the priesthood never even lived yet. But because the seed of those generations were in Abraham, they all bowed to Melchizedek right there. On the spot. Meaning what? That this Melchizedekian priesthood was always more superior than the ironic priesthood, than the line of Levites. It was always that way. There has never been a time it was different. And so if Jesus Christ is the one being pointed to, then we see that Jesus is greater than all. Now, how are the qualifications of the Melchizedekian priesthood different than the qualifications of the Levitical priesthood? The Levitical priesthood being the old, unuseful, can't perfect anybody, can't save anybody completely, can't make anyone right with God, and now the new that can do all of that. And it's going to be all realized in Christ through this elusive character that shows up here and there in Scripture, showing the eternality of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which leads to Christ. Well, for example, the, the Levitical priesthood according, is, is according to the order of Aaron. The Melchizedekian priesthood is according to the order of Aaron. Not the, according to the order of Aaron, but Melchizedek. The Le- Levitical priesthood, based on genealogy and heredity, you have to be in that line. 
Melchizedek's based on the call of God and not genealogy and heredity. Levitical served a limit term of about 30 years, 50 years old. The priest was done. No set beginning or end of his life or his ministry. Passed in in succession one to another. Once one priesthood was done, it passed to another. The Levitical, or excuse me, the Melchizedekian, was, there's, it was untransmittable. It did not pass to another. The Levitical, it had nothing to do with kingship. The Melchizedekian, it was a royal priesthood. The Levitical historically came after the Melchizedekian priesthood. Also, the Melchizedekian—that's uh, a tough word to say when you say it all as much as I'm saying it. Under Melchizedek, it came before the Aaronic high priesthood ever came into existence. Levi is seen paying tithes to Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek is seen as setting aside the whole Levitical order and the whole Levitical order bowing down to his priesthood. The whole Levitical order under the Levitical system is, and its legal base is seen weak, unprofitable, and perfecting nothing. Under Melchizedek, it foreshadows the character of Christ, his kingship, his priesthood, his righteousness, and his peace. Now, this is a tough passage. And you probably will never hear a message on this passage again, probably haven't up until this point, and probably never will. So now, what do we have? Jesus Christ, who is perfectly qualified as a high priest, from an eternal order, can and will provide salvation to all who ask him by faith, making his ministry different in that unlike all those who have gone before him, his ministry is eternal. It is effective. Jesus offers eternal salvation. In fact, we see all through this passage, chapter 7, Verse number three, he is a priest perpetually. In verse number eight, he lives on. In verse number 16, according to the power of an indestructible life. Verse number 21, a priest forever. Verse 24, a priest permanently. Verse 25, who is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a high priest who is a forever priest who forever brings us into the presence of God, who forever gives us access to God, and it will never change for all of eternity. So the bottom line is Melchizedek anticipates beforehand the broader peace and the greater righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that he would provide for his people both perfectly and eternally. Now, brethren, that's where he's heading. And I'm setting you up for what's coming. I wish I could do the whole thing. I don't have the time. But hopefully you get the sense here that Melchizedek is pointing to the reality, which is Christ. 
And everything, everything is filled in Christ, fulfilled in Christ. Everything. So see, if you don't have the Jesus of the Bible, then you don't have salvation. And you don't have the truth. And you don't have what you need to make it right with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for Jesus. Thank you that he is our perfect priest. And Jesus, I confess my own sins before you. I am a sinner. I am imperfect. I need forgiveness. Your people need forgiveness, Lord. And Lord, I depend on your prayers every day before the Father. I depend on your death on the cross to atone for my sins. Every day I depend on that. Now, Lord, I draw near to you because you are a holy God. And you are a holy intercessor before the Father on my behalf. So, Lord, I pray this morning that anyone who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, today, Lord, may be the day they come and confess you and believe in you and follow you. To those who do know you, Lord, please jolt them out of their stupor. Make, remove their dullness and give them a life-giving spirit that they pursue righteousness and holiness and they bear fruit because Christ lives in them. And Lord, help us to fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And Lord, let us live with gusto because we know this to be the final and only authority where anyone could be saved. And we know that they only will be saved. Yes, Lord, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, be with us every day helping us to understand what you have been doing. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.